0: It's the most famous pedestrian crossing in the world, the Shibuya Scramble. Most people, though, only ever see it from above, not on the street. And from here, it's clear, it's being transformed. Once, it was known as a place where a dog had waited for his master for ten years after the master died. We're standing next to his statue. But then, in the 70s, Shibuya took off as fashion central for Tokyo's youth. There was a department store right over the station. There was a fashion mall over the street and other delights further up the hill. By the 2000s, though, the buildings were getting old. The hot tech companies were moving elsewhere. And so newer, taller buildings are going up to house them. Shibuya Hikarie, Shibuya Scramble Square and more. Even an old river is being resurrected to attract the creatives back to the town. Most people only see the scramble from above, from the sky, but you can only experience it on the streets. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer, I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years, but when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside. Walk the streets and pick apart the layers.
1: And I'm Jelena Sofranievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets.
0: In this walk, we're exploring three areas in the west of Tokyo, which mushroomed in the post-war period, providing a vision of what this city, and maybe cities worldwide, might become. All three became famous entertainment districts. All three have also, therefore, been subject to the attention of both the authorities and the developers.
1: As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace, Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself.
0: In this episode, we explore how Shibuya has provided space for the modern state, corporate titans and Tokyo's tribes to make their dreams come true around stations, shrines and parks. It's also the part of the city where foreigners have been coming to see what the future is going to bring. We'll start at the entrance to Meiji Shrine, which was here first. It's just across a bridge from Harajuku Station. We'll meet you there. So here we are next to Harajuku Station by a stone bridge with some mid-rise buildings on the other side. It's a busy part of Tokyo. There are trains rumbling beside us, helicopters and planes even overhead. We're on a flight path into Haneda Airport. But we're also on the edge of a forest. We're looking at a huge tory gate. This is Meiji Jingu. It looks as if it's been here forever, but it's only just over 100 years old. Between the 17th and the 19th century, these were various daimyo estates, feudal lord estates, and they were acquired by the new state in the 1870s. This area remained, though, largely agricultural, Tea bushes were growing here, mulberry was growing here, the mulberry you needed for silkworms. But the city slowly expands west. In the 1880s, the military relocated from Hibia, which we've met in a previous walk around the Imperial Palace, to the new Aoyama training ground, which is only one kilometre to our east now. Industry and empire begin to ramp up. Then, 1906, one year after the war with Russia... Harajuku Station, which we see today, is plonked down here. In 1909, the military opens yet another new training ground just to our west. And then in 1912, the Meiji Emperor dies. He'd been installed back on the throne in 1868. And the 50 years or so of his reign have overseen a huge transformation, a modernization of Japan. The Emperor himself had stipulated that he wants to be buried in Kyoto, that's where the imperial family was based for thousands of years. And indeed he is. But there's also a movement for a shrine here in the imperial capital. And so this shrine is built in two parts, using a hundred thousand volunteers. Free labor is always welcome. The Emperor and the Empress, who died in 1914, two years after the Emperor, were enshrined here in 1920. This is the inner garden of the Imperial Shrine. This bit is built with government funds. Next year, the shrine itself is surrounded by 120 trees, saplings, and even bigger trees. The trees come from throughout the empire, including Taiwan and Korea. And the Aoyama Military Training Ground, just to our east, is turned into the outer garden of the shrine, thanks to nearly 7 million yen in donations. The donations too come from the Empire, but also from Japanese overseas. The original plans for the Outer Garden include a memorial picture gallery opened in 1926. 80 pictures are finally installed 10 years later, half Japanese style, half Western. It's also got the Emperor's stuffed horse. I highly recommend going and seeing it. There's also a track and field stadium. Baseball, swimming, and sumo then come along in 1924. The shrine was destroyed like much of Tokyo in 1945, but it was rebuilt very quickly and it continues to flourish. The shrine itself, the entrance to which we're now standing at, gets three million people at the new year, people getting rid of the old, welcoming the new. Over in the Outer Garden, a stadium was opened in 1920s, demolished in the 1950s, replaced by the new national stadium used for athletics in the 64 Olympics, and then replaced by a new one, for the 2020 Olympics, which were actually held in 2021. The original design for that, of course, was by Zaha Hadid, a London-based architect. But costs spiralled. When the designs were released, some people thought it looked like a vagina, and so Hadid was booted out, replaced by Kumakengo, Kengo, a Japanese architect. And so we have the stadium just north of us, largely in wood. But the shrine the still centre of this area of Tokyo is surrounded by a very different world, which begins to become clear next door on the land that was once a military training ground. So we're leaving this plaza now. We're turning our back on Meiji Jingu, though it's tempting to walk into the forest. We're not going to head over the stone bridge. We're turning an immediate right and then right again on a busy main road.
1: In the first episode of this walk, sociologist Shunya Yoshimi helped us understand why areas in the west of the city took off in the post-war period. Here he explains how the ground was prepared in the pre-war period by the Japanese military. So
2: in this process, the center of this city has changed from northeast to southwest. And the military institutions and bureaucratic administrative institutions, they start to concentrate in south of Imperial Palace. That means Kasumigaseki, Nagatacho, uh, Minato World, and the Shibuya World, and those areas. The most interesting thing is, before the war, all of these places was Japanese military areas. After the war, those areas became American military areas because Japan was defeated the war. And after the defeat, most of these military institution was taken over by American military. So there are so many American soldiers. And the Japanese young people want to get something from them, consume American culture. So that's why they gathered around American military institution like Harajuku, Omotesando, Aoyama, Shibuya. All of these places became very much fashionable. High-sense and middle-class young people as uh, they gathered. So that is why the downtown silence area became one of the most, not only politically, but also culturally important area today.
1: We'll discover more connections between the pre-war military and post-war development in the final episode of this walk when we explore Rapongi. So we've come
0: just a couple of hundred yards down that busy street and we've turned right into another plaza which is in fact the entrance to Yoyogi Park. Across the street, we've got a swooping shell of a building. Like the area occupied by the shrine, Yoyogi Park, too, was early modern mansions turned into tea and mulberry fields, turned into a military training area and army prison from 1909 until the end of the Second World War. Even though it was occupied by the military, it was still open to the public at restricted times. But it wasn't the best place for a university rugby club, apparently. There was horse manure everywhere on the pitch. One player said, When I had a bath after practice, straw came out of my nose and ears. Fast forward a bit to 1945, this huge area is requisitioned as housing for the U.S. Air Force. It's called Washington Heights. It's got 827 houses, as well as a school, a church, a shop, everything you need to stay American in Japan. It becomes a lightning rod for protest in 1952. The threat was enough to get machine guns out around the perimeter. But the U.S. forces are finally relocated, and it's used for the 1964 Olympics. Army housing turned into an athlete's village. And what we're seeing across the road, this swooping, shell-like building, is in fact a stadium for those Olympics by Tange Kenzo. We've met him in another walk around Shinjuku. This was at the beginning of his career. The Shinjuku Metropolitan Government buildings come at the end. In 1964, it's used for swimming. In 2020, actually 2021, it's used for handball. There's a smaller stadium for basketball right next door. And this area next to Yoyogi Park sees continuing redevelopment. The NHK Broadcasting Centre, where the national broadcaster does its thing, is built just to the west of these stadia in 1965. The park opens to the public in 1967. And from the 1970s, it becomes the epicenter of youth culture. Up until then, in the 1960s, it's Shinjuku that is the gathering place for youth, for politics, for art, for culture. But with the defeat of the student movements then, they come down here and they begin to get interested instead in music and fashion. And this plaza and the park beyond it is a gathering place for these tribes of youth. Their fashions change very quickly. There's a peak for the Takenokozoku in 1980. That's the bamboo shoot tribe who gather here to dance in formation in very particular costumes. Then there were garu in the 90s. There's also shopping very close by to get the look. It's still going on, although the crowd's a little older here. I was here on the weekend and there were some ageing rockabillies doing their thing, though most of them were sitting in very comfortable deck chairs. We're not going into the park. Unfortunately, we're not going to spend our time in nature today. We're going back the way we came and then straight ahead, over a bridge across the railway line, to the busy intersection we'll find at the bottom of that slope.
1: We heard from artist Toru Matsushita in the first episode of this walk that youth culture might be moving back from Shibuya to Shinjuku. Here he is again.
3: Shibuya as the center of the culture is really ending because clubs are shut down because of COVID. A lot of people in the generation say, "Oh, Shibuya is dead. Shibuya is dead." From like nineties, but what I think interesting is that like Shinjuku is like coming back to place for young people right now. It's kind of like history come back to Shinjuku. You know,
1: old centers can always become new again as we'll see in the next episode in Rapongi,
0: We're waiting to cross over this busy intersection now. On the other side, there's a guy holding maybe 15 dogs. The pet business is big these days, but the dogs are small. One more road to cross now. Over on our right, we can see a grey block of apartments. This is Co-op Olympia, built in 1965, in the middle of a post-Olympic luxury condo boom around here. There were clubs, there were coffee shops, there were boutiques. Still, you can rent a two bed in there for 4,785 US dollars a month. But we're heading over the road and then between two buildings down a narrow alleyway. The buildings are Fukuya H and Icos. I Q O S. So we found our way down that narrow alleyway. It's much quieter here. And we're being led past a whole sequence of boutiques and small cafes, the kind of urban landscape that characterised some of Harajuku itself. And this will wend its way down to Takeshita Dori. We'll meet you there. So we've made our way down that winding street. The noise has picked up, the crowds are beginning to throb. We're now on Takeshita Dori. This street took off in the 80s. It was serving the Takenoko Zoku, the bamboo shoot tribe. It was providing them the clothes they needed, the outfits, to participate in their dance routines. The original boutique is still just over to our left now, though it's shifted its focus to lolita fashion and punk. Interesting combination. By the early 90s, this is the epicenter of kawaii, cute, the cutting edge of Japanese soft power, according to the government, not least. It also becomes a focus of the Western gaze and an inspiration for creatives there. William Gibson, the founder of cyberpunk, came to Japan in the 80s and was shocked into imagining a new world. He came back in 2001 just to check that he could still find what he'd once seen.
1: I find myself distracted outside Harajuku Station by a bevy of teenage manga nurses, rocker girls kitted out in knee-high black platform boots, black jodhpurs, black Lara Croft tops, and open, carefully starched lab coats, stethoscopes around their necks. They're doing the Harajuku hang, smoking cigarettes, talking on their little phones, and being seen. I circle them for a while, hoping one of them will have a colostomy bag or a Texas catheter worked into her outfit. But the look, like most looks here or anywhere, is rigidly delineated. They all have the same black lipstick, worn away to pink at the centre. You can do that here, in Tokyo, be a teenage girl on the street in a bondage nurse outfit. You can dream in public. And the reason you can do it is that this is one of the safest cities in the world, and a special zone, Harajuku, has already been set aside for you. That was true during the bubble and remains true today. The manga nurses don't threaten anything. There's a place for them, and for whatever replaces them.
0: That was William Gibson in 2001. But Harajuku, and this street specifically, continues to inspire visitors from the West. Gwen Stefani famously released a single Harajuku Girls. She then released a perfume line, Harajuku Lovers. More recently, though, Stefani's got into hot water, by claiming that Harajuku is her spiritual home. It hasn't just inspired the Japanese young, or global fashion more generally. It's also been a way for slightly clueless Western pop stars to make quite a bit of money. We're not gonna linger here long though. We're turning right on Takeshita Tadori and then immediately right again, which will take us up a slope leading back to the main drag. So we've left behind the chaos of Takeshita Dori and we're wending our way along a street with more shops. On the left there's a cat and dog clinic and then a clothes shop. There's a t-shirt hanging there saying that Brighton is the most godless city in Britain, which I didn't know. But we're heading for the black tower ahead of us. When we get out on the main street we'll look back and see that it's very different from the front side. So we've made our way up to Meiji Dori, named because the shrine is here, leading all the way down to Shibuya Station, where we'll end this episode. And looking back at that building, which was matte black on its rear side, instead on its front we have a series of stacked glass boxes. The building's called Ice Cubes, it housed H&M for a while. It was designed by Jun Mitsui. He was born in Iwakuni, a town I taught in for two years back in the 80s, though it wasn't yeah then. But we're turning our back on the ice cubes, we're turning right on Meiji Dori and heading down towards the intersection we can see straight ahead. We're on the corner now, and we're looking up at a series of circular, modular, stacked bricks, almost, which tells us this is La Forêt. This was one of the early projects of the Mori Building Company. We'll hear much more about them in the last episode of this walk. But it's also important because in the early 70s, it's the place where a particular tribe gathers. This is a slightly older tribe than the kids on Takeshita They're the people who read two new women's magazines, Annan and Nonno, and so they're called the Annan tribe. They walk around this area and they visit these fashion complexes to get a slightly different, more mature look. This one, La Forêt, opens in 1978. The whole thing is helped with a new subway just before. We're turning our back on La Forêt now, crossing straight over to Tokyo Plaza, which we can see on the other side. So we're walking past the entrance to Tokyo Plaza now. On our left, we've got some escalators leading up through an extraordinary mirrored hallway, but we're not going to be tempted. We'll hear much more about Tokyo in the second half of this episode. Instead, we're continuing up the broad avenue, a tree-lined avenue in front of us. We're heading for the pedestrian bridge. We can see a couple of hundred yards ahead. So we've made our way to the pedestrian bridge now we're going to climb the stairs and start crossing but then pause in the middle of the road on top of it Here we are suspended over Omote Sando. Quite literally, it means the front processional approach. It was built in 1919 as the approach to the shrine. The sun rises straight above it to our east on the morning of the winter solstice. There are also 163 Zelkova trees, including seven that even survived the war. Another survivor was the Dojunkai apartments. These were built in 1927 after the earthquake one of 15 reinforced concrete collective housing complexes to provide homes for people in the destroyed city. But those no longer exist. Instead, around us, we see the consequences, the latest versions of a fashion wave that started in the 1970s. In the 1980s, this street and the streets around it is the base of the DC brands, Designers providing a wardrobe for characters. There's a crow tribe that dresses in the black of Yoji Yamamoto, looking like the birds that circle through the city. The Dojunkai apartments become a home for ateliers and tiny shops. But that's all swept away in 2006 by what we see in front of us, Omote Sando Hills, an upscale shopping mall for global brands. The architect is Tadao Ando. The developer, though, is Mr. Mori. We'll get to know him much better when we get to Rapongi. Next to Amote Sando Hills is uh, Ralph Lauren. On the other side, there's Chanel, there's Dior. The Dior building is quite striking. This is Sana. They got the Pritzker Prize for Architecture quite recently. This is from 2001 to 2004. In other words, we're in an international capital for high-end fashion. We'll come down off the bridge now. We'll descend the stairs, turn ourselves around, leave Chanel on our left, then take the next left by a statue of a woman. So we've just turned by the woman. We're on a much quieter street now, though there are still airplanes going overhead. We're on what's now called Cat Street, but was once an old river valley. Shibuya is a valley, and once there were rivers coming through it. Back in the day, there were water wheels to polish rice and to mill flour. One of those near here features as one of Hokusai's 36 views of Mount Fuji though, of course, you cannot see Mount Fuji from here today. Now this street has been turned into a pedestrian retail paradise. What you've got here is mainly American outdoor clothing companies if you need a technical backpack to find your way around Harajuku. We'll amble down it now as it wends its way until it connects with Meiji Dori again. When you see Balenciaga, Prada and, of course, Louis Vuitton, you'll know you've arrived.
1: Here's Toru Matsushita again, explaining how the American military who were stationed here after the war kick-started youth culture in Shibuya, but also how the recent Olympics has threatened that culture and how he and his colleagues in Sidecore draw on it for their artistic projects.
3: On this street, there is an oldest skating shop still running, named Stormy. And you can also see American skateboarding shop, Behind there, Luca um, and FTC. So Shibuya has like history of those shops and places. I think that's because um, Shibuya had American residents uh, resident after the war. There's a Yoyogi Park near from here, and it used to be named the Washington Heights. Uh, American troopers are living there, so disco bar was opened and also record shop is started. And there's also another story. This place is very famous place for skaters, and mm-hmm. history here. Um, skateboarding became like part of the Olympic game from mm-hmm. the Tokyo Olympic to one. Uh, Olympic gentrification started, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of banned skaters to do the skating on the street here too. And sometimes skaters get caught and, and arrested. Yeah, arrested. Yeah, it's crazy because you know all the tricks, mm-hmm. skateboarding competition in the olympic game and all the course all the things are from street nothing is developed in the park it's kind of cutting the roots of it
1: outside of japan a lot of people see things like harajuku Mm -hmm. and cyberpunk and they call it counterculture Mm -hmm. whereas here i feel like it's something that's more integral to the city and the same with skateboarding Mm -hmm. what do you think about that
3: yeah, it's not counterculture. culture Yeah, that's a very good point, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, very part of life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, also makes community. So street skaters never criticise skaters in the skate parks. For our projects, older skater was near 50, and the younger skater in the video was uh, 13. But they are skating together in the same team, and they have a respect to each other. So something a like counter-thought or... Um, Anarchism is very important, but on the other hand, you can do it forever, you know. <laughs> yeah. So now, skaters, graffiti writers, older generation is still doing because of not they are angry for the society. Anger, part of the league, right? yeah.
0: yeah. It's a craft. Yeah, craft, yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah, very yeah, well, daily craft. Huh? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes.
0: We've come to the end of that long, winding Cap street. We're standing next to a notice board which tells us we're at Shibuya Cast. In front of us, we've got a tree with arrows pointing out. It's called Arrow Tree. Behind us, we've got a very contemporary block and a whole film crew, sound crew unloading their trucks. And across the street, we've got a long, low-slung building, but we can already see Prada, Balenciaga, Gucci and, of course, Vuitton. In the first half of this episode, we've explored how the Meiji Shrine has been a still center for this district as the waves of fashion have swept through Tokyo's tribes. In the second, we'll move towards the station itself where boutiques give way to buildings and where the towers are reaching towards the sky. But now we're going to take a quick break. Welcome back. We've already seen how Shibuya prospered as Tokyo's young turned from protest in the 60s in Shinjuku to popular culture here in the 70s. Now we'll see how their demand was exploited by corporate rivals, but how even the built environment has to respond to fashion. We're facing Meiji Dori. It's Tokyo's first ring road but now we're surrounded by the first fruits of a 15-year redevelopment plan to create Entertainment City Shibuya. The building behind us, we've got sound trucks which we can see unloading tons of equipment right in front of it. This building is Shibuya Cast. It went up in 2017. It used to be municipal housing. Now it's a cultural hub with office space for creative industries. And then across the road in front of us, a low-slung, building with hoops going over the top of it. This is Rayad Miashta Park. It was built in 2020 by Mitsui Fudosan. We've heard about them in the previous episode and other walks. It used to be a public green space on street level. Now it's yet another shopping mall with the luxury brands we can see in front of us on the first two floors. Gucci, Balenciaga Louis Vuitton, of course, with Kusama Yayoi's pumpkins all over its front. Further up in the building, you can actually create a custom Kit Kat if you'd like. There's also a park on the roof. Green space goes skyward too. You can skate, you can boulder, and so on. Facing the building, we're turning left on Meiji Dori, and then we're going to take the first pedestrian crossing Under the building, we can see its name up above Miashta Park. Mm. We're leaving those luxury brands behind, though. We've met them before in our walk around London, leisured City. Balenciaga, especially recently, has been having a tough time. But here, back in Shibuya... We're walking under the building, under the train tracks, we can hear overhead. So we're heading up this slope now, and on our left we can see tower records, characteristically yellow and red. It might be a little puzzling for those who can't remember this company. But it's been in Japan since 1979. This building was put up in 1995 and then it became independent in 2002 and still thrives today even though the company elsewhere in the world has crashed onto the rocks. There are more than 80 stores in the country. But we're continuing further up this slope, crossing the busy road in front of us. So we've made our way up that slope a short while and crossed another quite busy street, Park Street. Up to the right, there are the municipal facilities of Shibuya, and indeed it used to be called Shibuya Ward Office Street, but it was renamed in the 1970s as the neighbourhood took off. In part because of the building, Parko, we can see across the pedestrian crossing. We're going to go and stand there and tell this story. In the first half of this episode we've already seen how the 1970s saw the emergence of Shibuya more generally of Harajuku and Omotesando in particular as fashion hubs there it's largely small scale but it's made possible by the demand being channeled through Shibuya station which we'll get to at the end of this episode and it's exploited by much bigger corporate players here they are side by side We're standing next to Parko. We met the man responsible for it, or at least his dad, in our previous episode in Shinjuku. This is Susumi Seiji. He inherited a department store from his dad in 1964, and he built his first one here in Shibuya in 1968 next to the station. Then this one came along, Parko, in 1973, and as we can see, it includes a theatre. Over time, This formed the center of a sprawling corporate group which included a very profitable credit card. He also got the street renamed from Shibuya Ward Office Street to Parko, municipal administration giving way to capitalism. Most important, this building from the 1970s establishes Shibuya as Fashion Central. He builds more stores here in the 70s and 80s. He also started up a discount chain which in time spawned Muji, loved worldwide. I'm using one of their pens today. He also got into hotels in 1988. He wrote poems. He was a man of culture. But when he died in 2013, his empire began to break up, or at least to evolve. The store we're standing under today was revamped and reopened in 2019. We're looking at the notice board now. Apparently it has a chaos kitchen in the basement. Luxury brands on the first floor. You can never have too many of them in Shibuya. It also has an art museum, a Nintendo store and a Pokemon centre. Something for everybody in one place. But we're continuing down that same street now to the store just next door, Tokyu Hands. We'll soon see a green sign which tells us that we're there. So we've walked the length of PACO and now we can see hands. This tells us that we've met the second big corporate player here. Tsusumi, Seibu, Paco got the thing rolling in the early 1970s. But Tokyu is the big player and we'll be talking about them for the rest of this episode. Tokyu is originally a private rail company in the early 20th century. And by the 1930s, they've built a department store here in Shibuya, down by the station at the end of their line. Come the 1970s, they've already fought a 20-year war with Seiji's brother over their respective shares of the tourist market in Hakone, west of Tokyo, near Mount Fuji. And they build another big main store here in 1967, which we'll see in a minute. But then Tsutsumi starts up Paco, and they have competition on their home patch. But they also have opportunity to do different things. And so in 1976, they build what we're seeing here, Tokyu Hands. Originally, it was a DIY store, hence the name and the logo, Hands, doing work. But it becomes and it remains a one stop mecca for crafts, for hobbies, and lifestyle generally. That means that Cebu has to respond 10 years later. But it's Tokyo Hands that retains its pull, not just for the Japanese. Here's William Gibson, one more time.
1: As Abercrombie and Fitch in my father's day was, to the well-heeled sport fisherman or hunter of game, Hans is to the amateur carpenter, or to people who take exceptionally good care of their shoes, or to those who construct working brass models of Victorian steam tractors. Hans assumes that the customer is very serious about something. If that happens to be shining a pair of shoes, and the customer is sufficiently serious about it, He or she may need the very best German edge enamel available for the museum-grade weekly restoration of the sides of the soles. My own delight at this place, an entire department store radiating obsessive-compulsive desire, was immediate and intense. I had stumbled, I felt, upon some core aspect of Japanese culture, and everything I've learnt since has only confirmed this.
0: These two stores, Paco and Tokyu Hands, suggest the extent to which Shibuya is the creation of serious capital, concentrated, deployed, and multiplied. But they're here because of the stations that preceded them. They spawn in their turn a whole ecosystem of fashion, food, and entertainment. And that system continues to evolve. All of this will become apparent as we make our way down the hills towards the station. So we're continuing to walk directly down the slope ahead of us with Tokyu hands on our left. And at the bottom of the slope here, we're turning left. We're on Inokashiradori, which follows a lost river. We can't see it today. Turning left will take us down another slope. At the end of it, we'll see a small little police box on our right. We'll meet you there. So we've reached that police box now. We've seen police boxes kind of like this all over Tokyo in other walks. But this is the first of this wave of creative police box building. Comes along in 1985, looks a bit like a helmet perhaps. But we're heading behind the police box and going up the short street we see in front of us. We've got Family Mart on our right and we're going to stop at Mega Donkey on the next corner. So we've stopped briefly next to Mega Donkey. It's probably the biggest of this incredibly successful chain of discount stores. We've met them in other walks in Tokyo, in Asakusa not least. But we've stopped here because we're on now the cross street which is Center Gai, Center Street. It's not the biggest street in Shibuya but it is the epicenter of mass youth culture, unlike the boutiques of Harajuku, which we saw in the first half of this episode. Fast fashion, game centers, food, less discriminating, more popular culture. So back in the 80s, this street as a symbol of Shibuya is an object of condescension by those who live on the other side of the tracks, around Omotesando, which we saw a little earlier. But the youth culture spawned here remains a magnet for young people today. Here's the protagonist of a 2020 prize-winning novella by then 21-year-old Rin Usami. It's about a high school student who loses her way in life and can only find meaning in worshipping, quite literally worshipping, an idol in a boy band, her Oshi.
1: I recalled the time I got lost after school and ended up wandering around Shibuya, trying to get an advanced screening starring my Oshi. Sneakers, leather shoes, stilettos and shoes of all shapes and sizes beat down over the blister paving and dirty tiles, repeating a mechanical pattern endlessly into the distance. People's sweat and grime encrusted the edges of stairs and pillars, piercing vertically through ceilings, and their breath overflowed from the linked boxes of the train cars. People rush towards escalators that suck them into buildings with floors stacked on top of one another as if they'd been copied and pasted. People moved inside walls of unthinking repetition.
0: Shibuya can replicate the worst aspects of social media. We'll see more of this as we continue to make our way down to the station. We're continuing up the short street now with Megadonkey on our left to the next corner. So on the next corner, a busier street. Shibuya is always under construction. And we're on Bunkamuradori, where we can see some of the relics of the heyday of Shibuya in the 80s now being transformed. Over to our right, we've got what was Tokyo's main department store, built in 1967. The sign is still there. But it was closed just this year in 2023 and it's being replaced by a 36-storey tower with a ceramic façade, an integrated development combining work, residential and play. It's meant to be ecologically sensitive. It's by a Norwegian firm and they claim that, nestled at the edge of Shibuya where energy meets calm, the project aspires to become Tokyo's newest urban retreat. Good luck. It's got competition behind that department store, we can see a sign for it, is Bunkamura. It's why the street has its name. It means culture village. That went up in 1989. It was another Tokyo project. It has a concert hall, a theatre, a museum, a quite good space inside. Tokyo claims it's the embodiment of one of its three C's, the culture bit. Other parts of the group were interested in cable TV, they're now interested in communications and, of course, credit. And then directly opposite us, still under the construction we can hear, is Dogen Zakadori. This is the district we're going to walk into, but it's given its name to this new development, more integration. Interestingly, it's right next to a much older story. Originally, Shibuya here was a post town on one of the highways leading out from the city. That meant, of course, that it became a courtesan district. Then it became a club land, and just behind this very posh development with Intimissimi, Italian lingerie, all ready for sale, there's a whole wood of love hotels where you can rent rooms by the hour or for the afternoon because you can't find love or privacy anywhere else. So we're now crossing this road, Bunkamura Dori, at a diagonal. We're heading down the narrow street with lots of restaurants on it, with intimissimi on our right. So we're nearly at the end of this small pedestrian street now. Up on our right we can see only two of the many, many love hotels on the slopes above us. We're here in the morning, so it's quite quiet, although there's a queue for something. we are just passing now. But now we're coming to the end onto another main street, leading down the hill, and we're going to turn left, heading towards the station. The hill we're heading down is Dogenzaka. It's a busy road. And now on our left, we've got a pink sign, which tells us this is 109 Shibuya, with a round tower at the front of the building, facing the intersection. We're pausing here.
1: Here's Toru Matsushita, one last time, underlining the corporate rivalry that powered Shibuya's development.
3: Shibuya is developed by two developers. The first one is uh, Tokyo. They uh, still have power and doing a lot of developing now, but the other one is Seibu. The principal of the group was a poet, yes. So he has big understanding. Well, he, himself, he thinks he's an artist, so he puts a lot of energy and money for importing the culture.
1: In the late 20th century, at least in Japan, corporate development wasn't always only about financial returns.
0: 109 is where Tokyo hit back at Parco in 1979. It's a pun on the name of the year. It's also open from 10 to 9, 109. This is a store full of brand boutiques targeting young women. Originally, it focused on women in their 20s and 30s, but then in the 90s, it shifted downward, and it became the epicenter of the mass clothing fashion for Tokyo's tribes, starting with Garu culture. One of the reasons it was able to do this is it hired what were called charismatic shop clerks who were very expert in pretending to be your friends for as long as it took for you to make a purchase. Its peak came in 2009, 20 years later. But it still survives today and is trying to reinvent itself like the rest of the district. We'll see more of that reinvention as we continue down this street which is getting busier and wider as the streets merge and we head down towards the station. We've made our way down the slope and now we can see the station over to our right. We're heading there across this incredibly busy intersection. We've made our way across that intersection, the Shibuya Scramble, one of the most famous intersections in the world. We're here early in the day. But if we'd been here this evening or the weekend or, God forbid, the new year, I'm not sure we'd have made it. And it's chaos, not just construction, but video screens on the buildings in front of us. We saw these back in London in Leicester Square, but Leicester Square is minor league compared to this. I'm counting the screens now. One, two, three, maybe four over there, five, and an incredibly noisy six showing an awful lot of Netflix. And then behind us... On the other side of the station, four huge towering blocks, one under construction, and right next to us, another massive block currently being torn down. It's hard to imagine now, but once upon a time, this was a quiet place. It was a place where the two rivers that we've walked down, Cat Street and Inokashira, Dori, came together. It might have been named after the clan that controlled the area way back when. In the Edo period, it became a bit busier. There was an important road out of town where the freeway just to our south now sits. And there was the post town that we've talked about where the love hotels now crowd. There was more connection in the late 19th century. The Yamanote line, the circular line around the whole of Tokyo, puts a stop here, a station on the valley floor. But Shibuya still isn't in the city limits at that point. Beginning of the 20th century, it's connected to the city tram and to the beginning of the underground, the subway. Like Shinjuku, it's in the 1920s, after the earthquake, that the gears begin to grind. The city is moving west. A lot of commuters come through here. There are more lines, more train tracks in the 20s and 30s. There's the first department store. Tokyo has opened its railway, linking Tokyo and Yokohama, in 1927, and it opens a store right on top of the terminal in 1934. It's copying Osaka, though, which has done this much earlier, and it's trying to monopolise the spending of the passengers who'd previously gone to Ginza, which we've seen in another walk. Like Shinjuku, Shibuya is hit badly in 1945. The station and the department store burned down. There are black markets. There are drinking places. In the corner of the plaza, we can see a bronze statue of a small dog. This is a story from the pre-war period. A dog waited here every day for his master, but his master died. But the dog continued waiting for the next ten years. The statue was installed while the dog, at least, was still alive in 1934. The dog died in 1935, was stuffed, and you can now see them at the National Science Museum. But in 1948, Hachiko is back. And Tokyo continues to build in the 50s and 60s. But again, it's in the 70s that things take off. The youth of Tokyo are migrating south from Shinjuku. They're shifting from political protest to popular culture. So, by the 1980s, Japan becomes the focus of the world's attention. And Shibuya is where you see the future. Here's William Gibson, the creator of cyberpunk, one last time.
1: I remember my first glimpse of Shibuya, when one of the young Tokyo journalists who had taken me there, his face drenched with the light of a thousand media suns, all that towering animated crawl of commercial information, said, you see, you see, it is Blade Runner Town. And it was, it so evidently was.
0: With Shibuya anchored in the global popular imaginary, in the 1990s, therefore, it attracts IT, the new technology, at least of that day. And Shibuya remains a draw at the turn of the century. Across the street, we can see Mark City, another Tokyo project, over the Keio private railway lines. They built a Cerulean Tower in 2001. But now, 20 years later, the older buildings are beginning to show their age. IT began to leave in 2010. Google went to Roppongi, which we'll visit in our next episode. And fashion even began to move on, to neighborhoods slightly to the south, more select, more exclusive, a little quieter too. So, beginning in 2012, the 15-year transformation that we've already seen in part. It originally targeted the Olympics, intended for 2020, moved to 2021, with very few people watching. At its core is a revamp of the station. It includes moving lines, building new platforms, easing access, which was always a horror show, and expanding the plaza on which we're now standing. But there's also the building we can see around us. Tokyo, yet again, is taking the lead. Not least to provide suitable office space for high-end clients. A total of 260,000 square meters. Quite a chunk. Behind the station, a series of Lego blocks. This is Shibuya Hikarie. It was the first one to go up in 2012. 43 floors, it's got lead lighting outside, which looks very pretty at night. Eight floors of shopping, six floors of theatre, and then an 18-floor office block. Next to it, even bigger, Shibuya Scramble Square. 2019, this one. 46 floors, it's a behemoth. It's the 12th tallest building in Tokyo, the tallest in the district. This one's mostly offices, but it has an observation deck, Shibuya Sky, on the roof. And there are more going up. There's a Shibuya stream tucked behind the square, where one of the old rivers has been resurrected, so you can sit and listen to the water run by. There's a 40-storey office building. There's a 30-storey apartment building. Shibuya is beginning to do the things we've seen already in other parts of town. We'll see even more of this in the next and last episode of this walk. And the regeneration seems to be working. There's other things going on here too. It's stimulating other development. There's a building just down the street, straight ahead of us, which is shuttered now. It was another department store, and it's being rebuilt by Foster and Partners, the famous British architect. It's going to be the first timber building in Tokyo for quite some time. Even in Fashion Central, ecologic is coming to town. For 50 years, Shibuya has been a seductive place. Much of it has been built by big corporations, but they've provided places where the young like to come. Even older folk, too, can find space to do their own thing. Fashion, though, always moves on. We're all in danger of being out of date. Neo-Tokyo, therefore, is always around the next corner. Its current incarnation is being built in Rapongi, as we'll see in our next and last episode. We'll meet you there.
1: Historicity <laughs> <laughs> is written and presented by Angus Lokya and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.